Aren't we so thankful to God for all the young ones in our church? And it's great to have so many volunteers willing to teach them. And as we now come to the Lord's Word, we're going to turn back to Malachi. And we're going to read from Malachi chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 9. <clears throat> Entitled this message, it's the second part to, to no honor among priests. I've called this the bad, the ugly, and the good. Verse 1 of Malachi 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so... I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. We'll finish at verse 9. What do you know about whistleblowers? Whistleblowers in 2009 led to the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer agreeing to pay out $2.3 billion dollars. This was the largest healthcare fraud settlement ever at the time. Now, it amounted to the equivalent of about three weeks of their usual seals, so Pfizer didn't lose much sleep. But whistleblowers inform on people or organizations that are engaged in corruption. But whistleblowing is also what the ref does at the end of a match to call times up. Don't know if you've watched any of the Rugby World Cup, but sometimes after 40 minutes or after 80 minutes, you just want the referee to blow the whistle. And yet, the timer keeps going until the ball goes out of play. But the referee calls time up. And in the passage that we've looked at, we kind of have both kinds of whistleblowing. God is blowing the whistle to call time on woeful worship, He's ending the dishonorable behavior of the priests towards God and the corruption in their worship. Now, as I said, we're still in the same section as last week. And so that big number two in your Bible may not be in a particularly helpful place here because it breaks up the section, but the numberings aren't inspired. But you'll notice that there's a link to what we read earlier. You'll see terms like God's name, God's honor, 
curses, blessings, and priests. The focus is on the priesthood, and we see the bad, the ugly, and the good. First thing we notice is the problem with the priests, the bad and the ugly. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 8 to 9. God's warnings are blessings. As you can maybe see from these pictures, animals lovingly discipline their young too. And so you see in this picture how Mama Bear is yelling at her young and swinging them round and then setting them down and embracing her child to teach them and to warn them. And sometimes God's disciplines feel a bit like this. And so we ask, why does God bother to confront sinning servants? Well, with every warning and sometimes heavy rebuke in Malachi, we must remember those words, the very first words that he spoke in this prophecy. Back in verse 2, I have loved you. That's a completed action, but it has ongoing significance. Because he loves his people, God purifies them through discipline. I don't know if you've ever watched Judge Judy. And if there was a Judge Judy fan club, I think my dad might lead it. He used to watch it all the time. He probably still watches reruns. And each case of Judge Judy opens with a restating of the case and no-nonsense Judy asking for clarification or a retelling of the case in the plaintiff or the defendant's own words. Not so here with God. God is continuing to make his case for how the priests were defiling his name. And they don't get a word in now. They had their say back in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 13. And what a waste of words they were. Their weariness, their boredom with their worship were not valid excuses for their half-heartedness. And now God adds to their indictments. And so this chapter in verse 1 literally begins, And now for you is this commandment, O priests. Like many legal documents, the accused and their charges are being stated up front. God addresses the priests by telling them to listen up. This is for you. But this is for us too. Because like last week, we saw that the the problem concerned a distortion of true worship. And that was something I hope we were all challenged about. I certainly was. And what God does in this passage is not only rebuke the priests... But right in the middle, he reveals what a true priest is to be like. But first, God warns that the priest's blessings will be cursed. And this gets ugly. The priests acted as intermediaries, middlemen between God's people and their God. One of their roles in the temple was to pronounce blessings on the people who were worshipping there. You think of the most famous priestly blessing in scripture, it's in number six with the Aaronic blessing. And in fact, the earliest archaeological discovery that has God's divine name on it also included this blessing. It was found in a silver amulet and it had the Aaronic blessing. But using very skillful language, God takes various phrases from that blessing and flips them on their head. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And in a stark reversal, God is saying, no, my face will not shine upon you to bless, but I will curse you by covering your face with animal waste. 
an ironic blessing, if you will. The problem was they wouldn't take God's rebuke to heart. And in Scripture, taking something to heart is to take it seriously, to not only hear with your ears, but to be affected at the heart level, producing a change of behavior. It goes with listening, listening, but the kind of listening that God desires of his people never concerns only your ears. It's your innermost being, and that's often symbolized with cardio imagery as it is here. The heart must take in what God says through our ears. And that's because the heart is the seat of the emotions. If these priests will not acknowledge that God's glory above all else is to be their chief concern, God will turn their blessings into a curse. Verse 3 spells out how. God says he will rebuke their offspring. The point appears to be that God would punish the priest's lineage. I know that some of you are interested in family ancestry, but that doesn't compare to how seriously Israelites took their ancestry. Just consider how many genealogies there are in Scripture. These ensured the people of God, of God's faithfulness to them, his faithfulness to the promise of blessing that Abraham's seed throughout all generations would be blessed. So I think that God begins to threaten to curse the priests for a significant reason. The priesthood was hereditary. The office could only be passed down by lineage in the tribe of Levi, born into Aaron's line. So these priests ought not to assume that they can just keep the priesthood going if they're going to reject the very purpose that it was established for. In fact, we know that their office was temporary <clears throat> because Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ came and he fulfilled the priesthood. But God is threatening if they do not reform their ways, he will cut off their line. So we could call this part A of the curse. It's a rebuke of their descendants. Part B of the curse is one of those verses that you might not think is in your Bibles. You might be surprised when you read it. Because as disobedience stinks in God's nostrils, so the punishment that he threatens here will stink. The word is dung or offal. It's the undigested food inside the animal that's to be sacrificed. This part of the animal was always taken outside of the camp and burned because it was unclean. It's hard to imagine anything more unclean or unholy than animal waste. And it couldn't be anywhere near the place of sacrifice. Because this was to be a sacrifice as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Belfast-born T.D. Alexander says, Every person, object, place, or period of time is placed on a spectrum that runs from holiness to uncleanness. At one end stands God, and he's the ultimate manifestation of holiness. The further away something is from God, the less holy it becomes. So at the other end of the spectrum, you have the opposite of all that God is, uncleanness. These priests were consecrated by God to be set apart. That's what holiness really means. 
God's people too must be holy as he is holy. But the priests were to lead in this area. Now, obviously, that standard is too high for any human, except for one. But these priests weren't even trying. So God says, I will make you more unclean than anyone so that you can no longer serve me. And that God will spread the dung of their offerings is one thing. But your King James or New International Version are right to include that it's the dung of their feasts. So there's even more animal sacrifice than usual going on. And there's even more waste, as if things weren't awful enough, pun intended. This is disgusting, no doubt about it, but nothing is more disgusting to our pure, holy God than the unrepentant, habitual sin of the people he has set apart to serve him and to lead his people. Their total disrespect for who God is And total regard for what he demands is sickening to God. And so that revulsion that we feel as we picture what God's threatening to do is nothing compared to the revulsion that God feels when his own servants treat him with disdain. They were already unclean on the inside. And so God is showing their uncleanness to the people around them on the outside. God was going public with their private disgrace. (coughs) Excuse me. Now some, with inadequate views of God, might say, we don't like this God of the Old Testament. He's an angry, scary being. Give us gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Then we need to hear what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Matthew 23:15 Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert and when he becomes a convert you make him twice a child of hell as yourselves All three divine persons of the unchanging triune God agree on the seriousness of willful disobedience in the hearts of the leaders of God's people Last week, I mentioned two research findings that came out recently that showed that the churches that are declining are those that no longer preach Scripture. The ones that are growing preach Scripture faithfully. There's an even bigger report that came out this week, and it showed that liberal churches are dying the fastest in the UK. And this report said part of the reason was the clergy leading those churches were actually too liberal for the people within them. Those of us with a God-given responsibility to lead the worship of God's people cannot escape the frankness and directness of God's words. If we don't lead in such a way that upholds the honor and dignity of God's name that he deserves, he can intervene and take steps to ensure his glory will always be magnified. But for all Christians... Consider the words on the slide that are coming up. You may not have a pulpit, podcast, or publishing contract, but every Christian is made by God to be a priest, mediating the good news of grace in Christ to those around us. One of the most convicting questions I was asked once 
was, would an unbeliever be surprised to find out that you were a Christian? In other words, do you live like a Christian between 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning and then blend into those around you during the week like a part-time chameleon? And there were times at school when this question really convicted me. The priests in this passage have been labeled phleretics and orthocrites. What is that? Well, a phleretic is a heretic with flair. They don't attempt to hide their failures to keep God's commands. They're bold and blatant about it. And then others might have been orthocrites, outwardly orthodox in their teaching, but inwardly filthy. They were leading double lives, but God saw their sin as clear as day, and he unmasked their hypocrisy. But I want us to look now at verses 4 to 7. We'll see the purpose of the priests. And this is more positive. The severe chastisement has been made. And God says in verse 4, there's a reason for my challenge. It's actually intended to ensure the renewal of the covenant. They had broken it, but God had not. Their promises to serve as priests were forsaken, but God does not forsake his promises. And so this was a teaching moment, as all God's discipline is. So this is the major teaching of the passage, and it begins with the priesthood of Levi. Now, if we admit it, we're probably in unfamiliar territory when we see a phrase like the priesthood of Levi on the screen. Christ has done away with the old that doesn't mean that it can't teach us something today. And so we look at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. God alone is the giver of life and peace. Life is more than your years. It's what makes those years a joy, gives them meaning and purpose. And peace, shalom, is far more than an end of strife. No, it's not less than that. Peace from God is first to have peace with God. And it's to have a stable, immovable state of harmony, regardless of your life circumstances. Because you live in the knowledge that the Lord is your loving shepherd who forgave your sin. These blessings were given to faithful Levites. But they're also made available to whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Who asks for this forgiveness of sin and eternal salvation. Jesus said that we can have life in his name and that we can have peace in that same name. So regarding the covenant with Levi, God gave him life and peace. That's God's side of the covenant. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This was the Levite side of the covenant to honor God appropriately and obey his commands. Okay, but what on earth is this covenant with Levi? Well, the tribe of Levi came to prominence after Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He'd been with God and he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. Moses asks, who is on the Lord's side? And the sons of Levi rallied around him and then they carried out judgment on the idolaters. 
Moses carries out a, a mini ordination service where the Levites are set apart to serve the Lord and the Lord blesses them. And that's the Levite origin story summarized. They had no inheritance like the other tribes. Moses said, God will be your portion and your inheritance. And then in Deuteronomy, their role is given very clearly and succinctly. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Carry the Ark, minister, and bless in God's name. So they weren't just administrators of worship. They were also teachers. They pronounced blessings in God's name. But because they had no reverence for that name, God says he'll curse their blessings. Now, I wonder if you can turn to Numbers 25, because there's one little bit of background information that proves very significant for understanding Malachi 2, and it concerns Phineas, not the red-headed one from Disney's Phineas and Ferb, but Aaron's son, who was zealous for God's honor. <clears throat> Something I like about Malachi is, to really understand it, you have to turn to the cleaner pages of your Bible, those pages that you maybe haven't really turned to for a long time. If we look at Numbers 25, we can see in verses 10 to 13, the kind of zeal and honor that this man had for God. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This man's honorable actions were so esteemed by Israel that he actually makes it into Israel's hymn book. And so in Psalm 106, we're told that his turning away God's wrath was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations. So if it seems like in Malachi, God is ordering a lot of works to be done for his blessing, we need to remember that all of these works in the old covenant were based on faith in God's promise, which would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Levites feared God, stood in fear of his name, and that is the basis for true worship. It's always been the same. Now, admittedly, Malachi's audience would have been more familiar with this than we are. And so God is drawing their attention to the good priests of yesteryear to convict them and teach them what they were supposed to be like. But now in verses 6 and 7, in the middle of a heavy rebuke, God inserts a description of the ideal purposes of priests. So look at those verses with me. Firstly, they were to fear the Lord, to hold him in such high regard as to humbly submit themselves to his authority. Secondly, they must speak only truth. The sum of God's word is truth, and so it must be on their lips frequently. Thirdly, they were to walk with God blamelessly in peace 
and uprightness. Walking with God is a, a lifelong pursuit of his will, like Enoch who walked faithfully with God and did not die. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Fourthly, it tells us, they were to turn many away from iniquity. So by their example and their teaching, their actions supporting their words, they were to lead others away from sin. Fifthly, they should guard knowledge. And they should do so in a way that other people would seek God's teaching from them. So again, they'd need to regularly be in scripture. And lastly, they were God's messengers, his mouthpiece to the people around them, declaring only what he told them to say. The very name of the prophet speaking to them was a constant reminder of part of their role too. They were to be Malachi's, God's messengers. And so with those six purposes of the priesthood, ask yourself, is there anything in that list that doesn't apply to a disciple of Christ? Maybe the fifth and sixth descriptions are more relevant to those who teach, but all of us are entrusted with teaching the gospel in some way. All of us are to fear God, to speak truth, and have integrity. And I think integrity was the big thing that was lacking in these priests. They were not keeping the very laws that they told others to keep. No wonder their wicked lifestyles were having a bad influence on those around them. If a mother or a, a father tells their kids to stop bickering with each other, and their children often see their parents arguing, what good is that? The challenge to those of us who teach, and those of us in leadership, is as obvious as it is convicting. It's been said that this is an extremely uncomfortable passage to preach because the last thing any preacher wants to consider is the possibility of God smearing muck and dumping a pile of refuse on your face. That's true. But all who profess the name of Christ as Lord are drawn to reflect upon this passage seriously because Christ detests hypocrisy amongst his disciples. In verse 9, we see how Malachi connects the end of this back to chapter 1, verse 6, by repeating this word, despised. There, the priests despised God. Now, he says he will cause them to be despised, but not just despised, abased or humiliated. Because as if their list of crimes wasn't long enough, God attaches one more at the end. Partiality. Something God hates. Favoritism. Maybe giving preferential treatment to the wealthy of Israel and neglecting the poor. They were told they were not to show partiality. And the same principle applies to the church. You can check out James 2 for an extensive condemnation of favoritism in the church. This is all pretty bleak, isn't it? But the high point of this negative rebuke is how God points us to the perfect priest, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The history lesson points the priests to the Levites, who were good priests before, and shows them how they're to function in the present. But in the future, God would provide a perfect priest, 
the great high priest whose name is love, as the hymn puts it. If a priest was to be a God-fearing, truth-speaking, peacekeeping, upright-walking, knowledge-guarding messenger of the Lord, only one true priest fulfilled this role. Praise God that when he abolished the priesthood, he didn't leave us with no one to represent us before him. So I want us to consider how Jesus alone fulfills this. Was he God-fearing? Well, Isaiah tells us that he loved to fear God. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Was he truth-speaking? John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Was he peacekeeping? He said, in me you have peace. Only Jesus had the authority to give peace to his followers. Was he upright walking? Peter says he committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Knowledge guarding, according to Proverbs 2, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And was he a messenger of the Lord? John 12, Jesus says, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. We have one priest, the Lord Jesus, the messenger of God who is God in flesh, He has turned the curses we deserve into blessings by becoming accursed for us. He obediently endured even death on a cross where he took the judgment that we deserve for our shameful record of sin against our maker. Like the disgusting refuse cast away from the temple, taken outside of the city gates, the spotless lamb of God was expelled from the temple treated by the very people he created like unwanted waste. But our Savior accepted such humiliation, being publicly executed like a common criminal. And if that was the end of Jesus' work, we would have no hope like the unrepentant priest. But our Savior could not be contained by death. He was not confined to the grave. And so on the third day, he rose triumphantly, He appeared to many people before he ascended to reign at the Father's right hand as sovereign king. And now as our great priest, he mediates between us and the Father. His Holy Spirit molds us into the priests we're called to be. Peter calls us royal priests in his letter because we offer God spiritual sacrifices which are always accepted in Jesus. This is a royal privilege. Christ alone provides unrestricted access to the holy God who loves us. Do we appreciate how truly wonderful that is for a Christian? And an even greater hope that we hold firmly to is that one day we will see God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. The high priest's purpose was to represent a sinful people before a holy God, to mediate on their behalf so that God wouldn't wipe them out for disobedience. But even the high priest himself started every day's work with a burnt offering for his own sin. Jesus did not, does not. He doesn't hide his face from God. He is presently in the presence of God always, even at the right hand, the the place of ultimate importance and authority. He does not offer sacrifices to atone for our sins. 
He has done that once, and it was sufficient. Why? Because the sacrifice he offered was himself. And that was a truly pleasing sacrifice that God accepted on our behalf because Christ alone is perfectly pure and holy. And if you submit to Christ as king, if you confess your sin, by faith you too can be forgiven. You believe in him as Lord, he will be your savior. And as your high priest, he will make you acceptable to the Father. If you go on deliberately sinning, rejecting Christ's sacrifice for sins, Hebrew says, you have only a fearful expectation of judgment. Do not fall into the hands of the living God as your judge. Hear his call today to run from your evil ways and confess your need of him. His covenant, his promise to you is life and peace. And he will give you both, as he did with Levi. Stand in awe of his name. Fill your mind and mouth with true instruction from his word. Walk in peace and uprightness. And guard the knowledge that he has entrusted to you. So that you will be able to point others to the great high priest. In his name, amen. We're going to sing Jesus is King and I will extol.